Hi, I'm Dan Jones. And I'm Mia Lee, and we are the editors of Modern Love at the New York Times and co-hosts of the Modern Love podcast. We read love stories for a living. And by love stories, we mean essays written by real people about all forms of human connection. We're talking about everything from first dates to funerals, from sibling rivalries to new love at 85. On our show, we're going to bring those stories to life. We'll hear from the writers and also from the people who are written about. Relationships are the most important things in our lives. And the people that tell us their stories are just so brave, like way braver than I think I am most of the time. Yeah. They're so honest and so vulnerable. And listening to the stories, I feel like you absorb so much wisdom and you get a sense that you're not alone. You can follow Modern Love wherever you get your podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. We hope you'll join us. New episodes are out every Wednesday. From The New York Times, I'm Michael Barbaro. This is The Daily. Today. Venezuela is in the midst of a bloody month-old protest movement, with demonstrators outraged by the country's dramatic economic collapse and the government's increasingly authoritarian rule. A Times reporter's close-up account of what's gone wrong. It's Monday, May 1st. This is the scene on the streets of Venezuela's capital city, Caracas. In protest of President Nicolas Maduro's government. This is becoming a country where only one man, one party, is in charge. And it's a place where they've delayed elections. They haven't allowed peaceful protests. They've been getting rid of journalists like myself, but but far worse. There are journalists who have been jailed. There are journalists who have been attacked. The country has taken a huge turn. My colleague Nick Casey has been living in Caracas, reporting on a country on the brink of collapse until recently, when he was kicked out of Venezuela for that reporting. Toward the end of that time, he went on a trip, a drive across Venezuela that captures the story of this moment. We went about 1,200 miles, going to almost every section of the country, this long road trip, but a road trip that was just having a look at, at this disaster which was starting to unfold. You know, we'd pull over and we we found a a hospital where we just followed the doctors and who wanted to show us what was going on there. They didn't have medicines, they didn't have bandages, they didn't have soap, and even more absurd, they didn't have water. Can can you imagine that, that the pumps had broken four months before, and despite all kinds of complaints and protests uh, to the state governor. No one had come to fix it. So one of the, the, the doctors described to us the process of trying to do surgery when you couldn't even wash your hands. We went to agricultural heartland, Los Llanos of Venezuela, and saw huge tracts of land where there was nothing being grown at this point. There was no fertilizer. People couldn't actually grow their beans. There were huge lines for food for people just trying to get bread at this point, something which was almost unimaginable in a country the size of Venezuela, which was as rich as Venezuela, a country that has got more oil under the ground than even Saudi Arabia does right now. This is one of the richest parts of the world, and yet it's also a place where you've got people who are standing most of their day just trying to get 
bread or cornmeal, and often at the end of the line, they find that there's only cooking oil because the shortages are so big. So on this trip, we were seeing that the country was starting to shut down. How did things get so bad? Some people would say that day one for this in Venezuela was the arrival of Hugo Chavez to the presidency. El mercado que todo lo arregla. Mentira. Mentira. In 1999. He was someone who had already tried to take power in the country through an attempted coup years before, but this time had won a presidential election outright. His promise was socialism for a new century, basically. This was in the region among leftists. The big hope. Un niño de Venezuela tuvo un encuentro con él. Oigan sonar sus espuelas, va cabalgando otra vez. Suddenly, you had a country with vast oil resources that had a new leftist vision where instead of distributing this money among the most wealthy and among the foreign oil companies, the idea was going to be to distribute this among the poor and be able to use this to increase education, to be able to build more roads, to be able to build more classrooms, uh, really just to be able to lift the barrios, the shanty towns, out of poverty in a way that no one had proposed in years. And this was the perfect time for this because the price of oil almost immediately after he got to office mm. started to rise to incredible heights to the point where it was above $100 a barrel. So you had all of this money being pumped into everything from new houses to new infrastructure projects. When elections would come up, these were great times in Venezuela because Hugo Chavez would just literally go around the country handing out refrigerators and food and all kinds of things to try to get people to vote for him. This was sort of democracy, socialism, and capitalism kind of all at their extremes. You said that as popular as he is, that day one of this crisis can be established with the arrival of Chavez. What did he do wrong while so many people thought what he was doing was right? This is often the debate between economists and ordinary people. Economists often take the long view for how do you create a healthy economy in a country, and populism takes the short view of how do you make people happy. And in Venezuela, there was a contradiction between those two things. By giving away so much of the state money, Hugo Chavez was able to raise the fortunes in the short term for so many people in Venezuela and give them opportunities that they never had. But he also closed a lot of the long-term possibilities for Venezuela. And the main thing was that the state oil company, so much of the money was diverted away from it that in the end, he started to kill the goose that was laying the golden egg. This is a disaster for, for Venezuela. Unsustainable public spending in the last decade has combined with a severe drop in the oil prices, leaving this crude exporting nation almost on its knees. A lot of that money 
went into the social programs, and the source of that money, the state oil company, started to crumble. The Venezuelan economy has been in free fall for years after oil prices collapsed, leading to widespread shortages of food, water, medicine, and other essentials. In Venezuela, the International Monetary Fund expects inflation will increase by more than 1,600% this year and almost 3,000% next year. One man once told me that he had paid for his house years back with the same amount of boulevards that would cost to buy a cell phone right now. Mm. I, when I first arrived there, um, would have to get cash by going to the bank and coming out with just literally stacks of 100 boulevard bills. 100 boulevard was the, the highest denomination when I was there. And your meal might have been 14,000 boulevards. That would mean counting out 140 bills just to pay for lunch. And then next week you could expect that lunch was going to be even more expensive than before. So Nick, on this drive, as Venezuela's economy is crumbling, you come to this town, Maturin, that illustrates so much of what's going on in Venezuela. Tell us about that town. The town of Maturin is basically an oil boom town. There's oil rigs that you can see. Some of them are idle everywhere. You can see the flares of oil wells um, still on the horizon line. The whole city had different connections to the oil industry all over. Many people came there because there were lots of oil jobs. Um, this was how the roads got paved. Um, you know, this also used to be a city where you'd have many immigrants from different parts of Europe or the U.S. Uh, people would come to work for the oil services companies or actually work for the state oil company itself. It was a cosmopolitan kind of place because of its connection to the rest of the world uh, through oil. But it's totally collapsed. You know, it was a place where people used to have fancy cars. Now it's a place where people barely go outside anymore. Mm. It's a place where people are spending most of their day simply trying to find food um, as opposed to living an ordinary life. So in this town, you met a woman who had just lost her job and who had a son, Kevin, whose story she told you about. So we got to Kevin's uh, mother's home. Uh, her name was uh, Yamilet Lugo. And you know, the first thing we noticed was just how thin she was herself. She lost the amount of weight everybody in the house had. And the family was collecting some subsidies from the government, but those started to vanish too. So the daily question was how they were going to get food. It got to a stretch where no one in the family was eating and everybody was basically sitting around in this house and starting to get more hungry every day. They made the decision, like a lot of people in this neighborhood were, that they were going to start looking for food that was growing out in the wild. And they had found a plot where there was some edible yucca that was growing, but eventually they, they couldn't get to that plot, so they tried to go somewhere else. This was a place they'd heard of where there was also something that they could eat that was growing, but it wasn't the edible variety of yucca. It was a, a variety which called yucca amarga, which is bitter yucca, which is, which is it's poisonous. They ate it for dinner that night, and everybody in the family started to feel a little strange. But Kevin, it, it seems he'd eaten some more because he was suddenly starting to vomit. He had these terrible stomach cramps. Yamila, the mother, said she looked at his face and, and she saw it was totally white. They knew they needed to get him to the hospital as quickly as they could, but it took hours before they were even able to get someone to lend them a car to be able to get there. And when they got to the hospital, 
they got to what is basically typically a, a Venezuelan hospital right now, which has a long waiting line, no medicine, and really no way to treat you. So the mother told me that they were waiting hours before they got anyone to even be able to see Kevin. And when they did, they actually sent the family out to get basic intravenous solutions. These hospitals don't have intravenous solutions right now. They're telling families to go out and try to find things on their own. Themselves. Themselves. Imagine, it was like if you would go to the hospital in the U.S. and they said, here are the bandages you need to go buy. The doctor's here, he can help you, but he doesn't have anything. She doesn't have anything to take care of you with. And that's, I can't fathom it. That's what it is every day in Venezuela for anyone who's going to a public hospital. And, and this was the case for, for Kevin and for his mother that night. So was it 4 a.m. That, that she looked into his eyes and he was hardly able to speak and, and that she felt his stomach and she said his stomach just like felt like a stone. And it was about a half hour out of the, after that um, that he was pronounced dead. She just saw his gurney going, going by basically as he was being taken to the morgue. And she could see at all the different levels in which her son's death might have been prevented. And right. I remember her telling me about going to the funeral, which was just after, after his birthday. And, and she told me that she'd not been able to sing him happy birthday that day. Um, and that's what she did, like, on top of his coffin. She sung, like, happy birthday to him. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. Did he die on... His actual birthday? He did, yeah. He died just a few hours into his birthday. It was the day before his birthday that he ate the food that killed him. And um, it was it was just after, you know, it was in the early hours of the morning on his 16th birthday that he died. Nick, given everything that you have described to me about what's happening in the country, I wonder how the people of Venezuela are reacting on the ground and, and in the streets. There are big protests right now that are happening. This was the narrative I was covering, the people that didn't have the food, the people that didn't have the medicine. Now these people are going out by the tens of thousands, maybe even the hundreds of thousands, into the streets of, of Caracas. And they're demanding that they hold an election to try to get a new government that hopefully could, could solve the issues that, they're, that they've been dealing with for more than a year. So the government's mm -hmm. reaction has not been good to this. Instead of allowing these protests to happen, they have attacked the protesters with tear gas, water cannons, with rubber bullets. At least two people were killed yesterday as opponents of President Nicolas Maduro battled police. And there's no sign that the protests are going to abate or that the government is going to listen out the protesters either. There has been growing opposition to widespread food shortages, triple-digit inflation, and rampant crime. Tell me about this government that's doing this crackdown. The government's led by... Nicolas Maduro, who was Hugo Chavez's successor after he died in 2013. Mm -hmm. And 
it's amazing to see what his reaction has been to these protesters and what's going on, which has been to... What, what, what has it been? Well, it's been to come out with just a flurry of, of propaganda saying that there are no problems in Venezuela. Quieren practicar el terrorismo. A lot of videos that he's been recording and, and posting on social media or on television. Venezuela y paz. Paz. <laughs> you know, one of these videos, he's on a cable car. Una belleza, vale. Caracas, la cuna de los libertadores. Caracas en paz, Caracas bella. Going down one of the mountains in Caracas. Ahora vamos a ver la película, el documental que hicieron. Talking about how quiet and calm the country is and how peaceful things are, except for a few people he calls fascists that are going on in the street. What do you make of that? Well, I don't think Venezuelans are going to buy it. And the reason is that, you know, this country is isolated, but it's not North Korea. Right. This isn't a place where they're talking about some dangerous enemy outside of the country where no one can actually see. The problems in Venezuela are in Venezuela. Venezuelans can see that this country has been completely turned upside down. Right. So having their president tell them that this is all an invention of the media, this is all an invention of people like me who have come in and have told lies, I think Venezuelans are able to see through that very quickly because it wasn't the New York Times that told them things were bad in their hospitals. It was when they went to the hospital and there wasn't any penicillin there. Nick, the reporting that you did was entitled when it ran in the paper, you know, teetering on the brink. That's how you were describing the country. Where is Venezuela on that journey? I mean, are we talking about a failed state here or something close to it? That's what the protests are going to determine if the government continues to repress these people, continues to shoot these people, these people won't always be peacefully protesting. This country could start to split apart. It could, there are many armed people in Venezuela, and and this is not a situation anybody would want to see. However, if the government acknowledges that the people need a voice, they need to be able to go out into the streets of Caracas and voice themselves, and they also need to be able to be able to go to the ballot boxes and pick different leaders if that's what they want. Then there's a chance that Venezuela could come back together again, that it could have political stability again, even if the economy is still going to be in shambles. But I've been barred from entering the country. What do you, what do you mean? What exactly happened? Well, it was um, at the end of last year that I was coming back to Venezuela after a trip in Mexico, and I was pulled aside at immigration, and they asked me what I did, and I told them I was a journalist. I've told them this many times, um, and they've let me through. But this time, they pulled me aside with three other reporters, mm -hmm. and they told me I wasn't going to be able to go, which told me that they were probably looking for me. Looking for you? What do you mean? Well, the government had already put my photo on television and said that I was someone that was aligned with right-wingers and the wow. people trying to bring down Venezuela. They'd already sent trolls out to uh, attack me on Twitter. They had used uh, pro-government blogs to discredit my articles. And now it looked like they were escalating to the point that they weren't going to let me in. They revoked my visa. They made me stay in the airport that night and then put me on the next flight, first to Bogota, and then they left me in New York. Nick, thank you very much. This is extraordinary reporting, and I hope you can get back into Venezuela. But if you don't, I'm sure you're going to be able to 
keep telling its story. Oh, yeah. You know, it was an extremely important part of, you know, my own life as a journalist to be able to be there. And I hope to be able to to get back um, because the story is, is continuing now. Um, and it will continue. So I, I hope to be able to be a part of that, too. Good talking to you, Nick. Okay, great. Okay, thanks, man. Bye. The hundreds of thousands of protesters who have taken to the streets of Caracas and other cities in recent weeks are demanding a return to democratic rule in Venezuela. They've been galvanized by the economic ruin that Nick described and by a botched attempt to dissolve the country's Congress last month. Nick is still reporting on the situation, but from Bogota, Colombia. We'll be right back. This fall, history is happening. September 14th, 2021. Hamilton, the Tony, Grammy, Olivier, and Pulitzer Prize-winning musical, returns to Broadway. Tickets are on sale now. Performances begin September 14th. Hamilton, back on Broadway at the Richard Rogers Theater. Learn more at hamiltonmusical.com. Here's what else you need to know today. A shutdown of the federal government seems to have been averted. Congress is said to have reached a bipartisan agreement on the budget that would fund the government through September. It includes increased funding for the military and border security, but not for the proposed wall that President Trump wants to build on the Mexican border. Trump backed away from his demand that the budget fund the wall, which had threatened to block an agreement and trigger the shutdown. And the Times reports that President Trump has stunned his own advisors by making a friendly phone call over the weekend to the authoritarian president of the Philippines, Rodrigo Duterte, which included inviting him to the White House. The administration is reportedly now bracing for an avalanche of criticism over the president's embrace of Duterte, who has been accused of leading a bloody crackdown on drugs that has killed about 2,000 of his citizens without charges or trials. The U.S. State Department and National Security Council were unaware that Trump planned to invite Duterte to the White House and are expected to object to the visit. Finally. There's another big gathering taking place tonight in Washington, D.C. Did you hear about it? At a rally in Pennsylvania over the weekend, President Trump denounced the reporters who cover him as hundreds of those reporters met for an annual celebration of their profession that U.S. presidents have attended for more than 30 years. A large group of Hollywood actors and Washington media are consoling each other in a hotel ballroom in our nation's capital right now. Journalists who were there talked about it as a kind of catharsis for a political press corps that's faced months of opposition, even as their host, the Daily Show comedian Hassan Minaj, reminded the reporters that much of the country has lost faith in their craft. I just think that a lot of people don't trust you right now. And can you blame them? I mean, unlike Anderson Cooper's bone structure, you guys have been far from perfect. That's it for The Daily. I'm Michael Barbaro. See you tomorrow. When times became uncertain, Womply pivoted their technology platform and committed to help small businesses and self-employed workers get approved for their PPP loan. In just a few months, Womply has helped one million businesses across America to secure much-needed funding so they can continue to stay open and serve their communities. Womply helps small businesses thrive. Visit Womply.com to learn more.